Hi, this is Hope. This is Kareem. Hi, this is Katie from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to Me Athlete Radio. Radio podcast. I am your host, Matt Frazier, and I am joined today by one of our first repeat visitors to the podcast, which we only do for very, very special people. And uh, that person is Ray Cronice, who was with us a few months ago and uh, did a really interesting ep- episode about nutrition in general. I mean, it was a very, very general, long call. There was a lot of detail, but we kind of covered a lot of areas too. Uh, anyway, Ray, thank you for being on here. We're going to talk about your paper, and uh, I am excited to to get into this stuff again. It's always always informative to talk to you. Uh, thanks, Matt. It's great to be here with you today. All right, so the new paper uh, just published recently. It's called The Metabolic Winter Hypothesis, A Cause of the Current Epidemics of Obesity and Cardiometabolic Disease, published in the journal of Metabo- called Metabolic Syndrome and Related Disorders. Um, so this is – that's a mouthful, and uh, – People who, who don't know much about you are going to say, what the heck is metabolic winter? So um, I guess I should give you the intro that I gave you before, which was um, I, most people who, who will know you will do so from your appearance in Tim Ferriss's four-hour body, at least in this audience, uh, where you talked about the the like the example in there was was uh, what kind of led into Tim's discussion of using cold, like ice packs and cold temperatures and things like that for the purpose of losing fat. Um, you've also were a NASA scientist before that, and um, the, I'm blanking on the name of the company, but it, the uh, the one where the Sports Illustrated girls in the recent swimsuit issue were uh, were let's I don't Zero know, G. I don't, <laughs> what's that? Zero G's Zero G. Yeah, okay. Um, you can you can imagine what uh, what that was about with the Sports Illustrated thing. I'll let you look that up on your own if you'd like. So anyway, um, let's just what's what's the background here with with the metabolic winner hypothesis? Right, so so thanks for the intro, you know, and and yeah, a lot of people know my other story, and if they don't, hopefully you'll have a link or something they can see that. But the the significance here is that you know when I you know that when when I did this four hour body, um, did the chapter with Tim, you know, we just you know we had reacquaint, we we knew each other when we met at a party. I was talking about how I'd lost weight. He said, you know, can you keep a secret and start it? You know that he was writing the book and wanted to you know tell my story, and and he took some of his past work and hung it on my story, and we were able to, to do this together. But what was interesting is really there was two fallouts of that, you know, besides the fact that lots of people got interested in mild cold stress and don't really t- want to talk much about that part today because we've done that elsewhere. But but the two fallouts were that, one, that people challenged the veracity. You know, they, they want to know, did you really do this and does it really work? Because it's real easy for this to become the ice cube diet. In fact, just today – uh, on some UK um, uh, newspaper, they have on a, yet another story on kind of the ice cube diet, and you know, and also they wanted to go in the extreme of cold, and that wasn't really what m- my work and what we were talking about was about. Yes, Matt, he, uh, Matt, he did do, Tim did do the the cold, but that wasn't the thesis of what I was trying to, to do, is saying you know everything had to be ice cold. And so the second part is. You can't really respond to that first question of, you know, is it real? Is it a real metabolic advantage if you don't consider the input side? You know, because, you know, 80% of our, the calories that enter, enter our body, just like the fuel tanks on our car, leave our body as waste heat, you know? And, and if, if, 
if you think about it like an accounting system, the bottom line is is that if you try to balance your checkbook and only you know only take into to account you know twenty percent of your withdrawals, your balance probably isn't going to come out right. And that's why all these people are worried about a calorie not being a calorie. So I really needed to look a little bit further into this, uh, a little bit further in into the the input side, into how does how is food processed by the body, but more importantly, how does this all relate? And fortunately for me, because of the TED Med talk. You know, one of my collaborators, David Sinclair, was there. He was he's at Harvard University and one of the leaders in longevity research. And he looks at caloric restriction in his work. In fact, this 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 year, just a month or two ago, one of Time Magazine's uh, top hundred influencers for 2014. So he was really pushing me hard back at the TED Med talk, and this is all predates uh, Tim's book. But he was pushing me hard to look beyond weight loss into how this tied into the the whole body of longevity. So we had started our email collaborations talking about that, and each TED Med, when we got together, we would, you know, really over a beer, certainly not over calorie restriction, we would talk about how these things really worked and how all of this was working together. And then, of course, the endocrinologist, uh, Andrew Bremer, when we met, and originally we were we met through through my daughter, you know, he was her, her endocrinologist, and we, we met through him, through her, and, and, and started talking about the endocrinology side. So to have these two people coming at it, one from the pure biological perspective and one from the endocrinology, and as a person who's an expert in, in sugar metabolism, that gave sort of a unique perspective. And so what is this metabolic you know, winter hypothesis? Well, the short story on, or the short explanation is if you can imagine our 7 million years of human evolution, if you can think of that as a mile, we, we have a set of genes – that are conserved with, with other species. And what that means is they all seem to have these genes. And in that 7 million years of evolution, you know, we had two primary stresses, cold stress and restriction of calories, you know, whether it's plants being restrictive of calories by have not having sun in the, in, in the, uh, in the, in the winter, or whether it's the things that live off the plants and higher up the food chain. And if you look at the humans in particular, if you think of that evolution, that seven million years a mile, the last four and a half feet of that mile is all of human agriculture. And the last 0.9 inches is refrigeration and transportation. And that fundamentally changes everything we eat, everything we can preserve, everything we have access to, everything we can transport, and the environments we live in. The only species that are obese and chronically ill are us. And the animals or the pets, we keep warm and fed, and they get exactly the same disease. So the, our hypothesis is that winter never comes, that there are some genes that are activated by either caloric scarcity or that cold stress or both, and are also obviously involved in our sleeping, which is a third axis of this whole thing. And that by changing our environment so much, by pulling ourselves away from what the inputs of the season are, that we are causing some of these you know, chronic diseases that are built up and the obesity. Yeah, so I, I think that idea, at least in the past few years, has has become, uh, it's you know, it's starting to become familiar, the idea that we are in this environment that is so, so different from the one that we evolved in because of technology, largely. And uh, have you read Dan Lieberman's book, Story of the Human Body? No. Oh, it's, I, I think you'd like a lot. I mean, it's a lot, a lot of these similar ideas more from, I guess, what yeah, an evolutionary biologist type guy, if that's what he is. But um, anyway, good book. But, uh, you know, like this, I think this paper, 
and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the significance here is that it's it's the first time that these sorts of ideas, which as we'll get into, really kind of overturn the thinking about food that's that's gone on for for I don't know the past what 200 years or something. Exactly. Um, yeah. So it and now it's in a in a I don't know I don't know what's mainstream in in the academic world at all, but but it, you know with with the scientific foundation in actual real med med or I don't know not medical but non sketchy journals. Um, to me, that seems like a pretty big deal. Like that, that these ideas that are just starting to evolve, that this is finally kind of putting them on a, on a firm foundation. Right. And so the idea here is you and I both blog and in our blog, we can hit publish and we can say anything we want. And many people do. And that actually is a significant part. In the beginning of our paper, we actually sort of pay a tribute to all the people that are really trying to get this right. I mean, because there, there are a lot of people that are trying to get obesity and chronic disease, right? And the question is, why why did we avoid it for so long, and why is it so prevalent today? And everybody immediately wants to go to the process this, the artificial that, the GMO this, and it's not that those have zero impact, but when you look at the basic way we live, which is chronically overnourished, we use that term in the paper, you know, a lot of people aren't used to hearing that term, but overnourishment, and that doesn't just mean calorie over, overnourishment. It means excess everything. Just because something has a really good biological function, you know, like vitamin C, doesn't mean you need to concentrate it at levels way higher than you would ever see it in nature and then take excessive amounts of it. And we've seen problems in vitamin A. We've seen problems in vitamin E. If you want to go back to the story, you know, to the turn of the century, sugar and oils were both considered to be nourishment that we need. We know that proteins like amino acids, uh, you know, certain amino acids like methionine, when overconsumed, have issues. And so the point is, is that this theme comes up. And so if you think of processed, maybe in its more general term, and that is really our access to food. Because before about 170 years ago, we basically looked at food as simply sustenance. We just needed to eat. And the only people that had the ability to really look outside of that were sort of the wealthy elite, and they were few and far between, and they all generally died early with problems. And when we look at you know Egyptian mummies and some of the other things, we see a high rate of cardiovascular disease and some other things. So the point I'm making is is that you know we now are all living like kings and queens. And I know we don't think of Burger King or any kind, even just fast food, fast junk, vegan junk food that's just loaded with sugar and oil. I mean, an Oreo cookie is vegan. It doesn't matter. It's not really food. And so the problem is, is that now that we've really, all of our food is about entertainment for the most part, and we're fed all day long, this chronic overnourishment has a downside. It has an impact on your, on the endocrinology of the body. And so, so really in, from a history perspective, you know, Liebig, uh, uh, Justice von Liebig, a German. Since you know, congratulations on your new, uh, your new book in in Germany. I saw that in, in your in your report <laughs> Thank today. You. So so, but but he the, and all of the German scientists fundamentally changed our relationship with food by before it was just sustenance, and then he basically within a few years of 1938 to 1940 year to the, or 1838 to 1842. They start thinking, talking about food, about sugars, about fats, about carbohydrates, about 
about proteins, and he starts everybody saying food is protein plus fuel. And we talk about that in the paper. It's now has a, a definition outside of sustenance. And so by labeling it and by his observations and labeling that and saying, you know, we're seeking this protein, certainly your audience hears this question enough that, you know, it, it begins to be the eye roll, you know, where do you get your protein? But the point being, for those that haven't thought about the problem a lot, this becomes a really a big hanging point. But you got to remember, this is the guy, Liebig, who started this, and what did he immediately do? He founds a company called OXO. And what does OXO do? OXO makes beef bouillon because Liebig believed he was going to solve everybody's sickness and problems with basically bouillon. And he failed miserably in his experiments, but we still eat bouillon, or not this group, but a lot of people still eat bouillon every day with the idea that you know now it becomes a flavor and now it becomes part integrated in and now every soup has to have it. And you know, part of you living the lifestyle you do is extricating that part from it, if that makes sense. So this relationship with food now is acquired appetite. You know, everybody says, you know, how do you live on a plant-based diet? How would you live without eating eggs, without eating cheese, without eating, you know, pick your favorite animal product. And the answer that anybody who lives that way would say is it's really not an issue. You don't think about it because these are acquired appetites. And we we talk about that in the paper, how we start acquiring a taste for something, and now when you take that something out, you start craving it. Well, that's not because it's instinctual and that you need it. It's just because you've been having it all the time. You know, I mean, an alcoholic, when when alcohol is withdrawn from him, craves alcohol. It doesn't mean that his body needs it. So th does that help with in terms of how that stuff twists into food and specifically into the stuff that you've been doing? Yeah, absolutely. And I'd like to hear you, I mean, a little bit more. So so you, you mentioned Liebig. And so what what has been the history since then? I mean, what what has happened that that, you know, with the with the focus on nutrients and um, just getting away from the idea of whole foods, but rather now seeking nutrients, because um, that that's what you are, uh, you know, essentially overturning with this paper. Um, right. Can, can you talk a little bit more about the, just the development since the, yeah, the very so, so, early discussion? I mean, we, we can go all the way to this today. I mean, every time we discover a new compound or a new something in food, we basically start driving the marketing people drive to sell food to get that something. So, you know, first it was protein with those guys. It comes later. Then it was calorie because we had a whole time when people were starving. Starving. Literally, they were malnourished, and what I mean by that is not that they didn't have nutrients per se. They didn't have enough calories to live. You know, at the turn of the of the of really the 20th century, 60% um, of the household income come was food. And so, when you look at it and say, okay, they're not even making it. Well, you know, back then it probably made sense, for example, for those children to drink milk. Not that it was health food. And I know a lot of people will get upset about it, but the fact is is that two-thirds of the kids were dying before the age of four, and death is not a good option. And so what they ended up doing is using calorie-dense animal foods to avert the problems that they were having. They weren't making enough of the other foods um, to, to get there, and that's not that they couldn't, but they weren't. So the fact is is that each time we went along when somebody decided something was in something that was important to – Nutrition, that person who sells the food that has that something in it starts mo marketing and monetizing it. 
And so then when you find yourself having a conversation and you said the word whole food and we, you, you know, you and I both agree on that. We eat whole food. But when you start having a conversation and someone starts asking you, where do you get your B12? Where do you get your vitamin C? Where do you get your protein? Where do you get your – and they just the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And the question is, well, I don't know. Seven million years of history, we didn't know it most of the time. Where did they get it? You know, how does every other animal get it? We don't know. You know, and they all seem to live, you know, to their normal biological lifespan. So the point being is that is that when you do this, you start eating to seek specific nutrition, and every time you do it, you end up getting more than you need. A little more orange juice, a little more potato, a little more whatever the something is, trying to get something, you know? And so this idea of deficiency, that we're seeking a deficiency, that we're un, uh, you know, undoing a deficiency, that sickness is because we're not getting something, that actually was true when eating rules started 100 years ago because people weren't getting enough food. But when you have a whole food diet, plant or animal alike, you can get everything you need. And so the point is, is that that's not a deficiency is not why people die that eat at McDonald's. That's not why they're dying. It's not because they're deficient. It's not because plants don't have enough minerals in them. That's not why they're dying. Why they're dying is because of all the excess that they're getting, all of the excess their body has to deal with all the time. You know, so th does that make sense from a perspective of from a whole food versus a I'm going to try to take, you know, the gray goop with all the vitamins and minerals in it, and it's, I'm going to work just perfect? The answer is how much you need, you know, your body figures that out on its own. Yeah, and I think so many people are afraid to trust that. Like people want to believe that. Um, and I mean, I, I've been there too. Right. And protein's the obvious one. Um, but I, I like how in this paper, you guys, it just, it, it's almost just assumed it's one sentence and then a citation. And just, you know, the, it's the, the message is protein deficiency isn't a problem unless there's a caloric deficiency on a whole food diet. And like, you know, say that and you're done with it. And I think that's great. Um, but, but I just, I think people are, it's, it's hard, such, we we're so indoctrinated, you know, into that idea of, of seeking vitamin C and whatever else that, to imagine eating without caring about that stuff, without thinking of it, you know, it seems careless or irresponsible to eat that way. Just say I'm eating whole food and I'm not worrying about the nutrients. My body will will get what it needs. Right. And and listen, if you were dealing in the day when they were dealing with scurvy and rickets, then the fact of the matter is those things are real. You know, citrus has a real purpose at that point. But today, food is so available. And when you look at something like protein, let's let's take that as an example because I know it's something that your audience particularly either gets questioned about or or is concerned about or, or whatever. But for example, don't forget that those same amino acids, these are the essential ones. Now, the, the quick lesson is 20 amino acids, 18 depending on how you count them, half of them your body makes and half of them you have to eat. And you share that problem with every other animal. Every animal has to eat. Those. So you eat the plant or you eat the animal that ate the plant, but all the essential amino acids came from the plant. Okay, you, you got that concept, right? Mm -hmm. So now let's look at those essential amino acids. Let's look at them carefully and say, okay, wait a minute. Of those amino acids, how does that play out my health? Well, it turns out that an increase in some of those amino acids, acids like leucine and methionine, are both positively 
or they, they enhance fecundity. In other words, they enhance your ability to reproduce. And we see all these people with this, you know, want testosterone boost or whatever. So in terms of positively benefiting evolution, having an increase of those, those essential amino acids, which come only from diet, and we're not really worried right now if they're plant or animal source, it's irrelevant right now. But when you have an increase in excess in them, you have a better ability to reproduce. Why? I assume because our biology says we're reproducing, food is plentiful, it's an okay time to do it. You know, that's a guess. Mm -hmm. That's everybody's best guess. Now, what's interesting is those exact same amino acids are negatively associated with longevity. In other words, an increase in methionine, an increase of the same things that would help you pass on your genes when you're at your sexual prime and you're young are a problem when you're past your sexual prime when you're old. In other words, the kinds of diseases we're battling are not gene diseases of of the genes, if you think about it, it's not that they don't have a basis in genes, but all these people that think they're going to eat instinctually or eat from an evolutionary notional past that this is how people ate, etc., are missing the fact that the genes were passed on when they were young, but the diseases we're dealing with are diseases of being old. And that can be for exercise too. Excessive exercise when you're young can cause issues when you're old that are not an issue. And I'm not saying, and we don't say in the paper, we're not saying people shouldn't exercise, we're just simply saying, this obsession with an, an over amount of it may not be a good thing. And so in terms of thinking about what you're saying with that specifically with protein and specifically with amino acids, the exact same amino acids are both a promoter of good reproductive health and at the same time also associated with a decrease in long-term longevity. And these sirtuin genes that we talk about, these are the genes that are found in all kinds of, of species from yeast all the way up to humans. These genes, when we restrict the, when we take these genes out of an animal and then restrict their calories, they don't live longer. On the other hand, if we take, for example, even yeast or plant cells or rats and we, we restrict their cal calories by 30 to 40% of ad libitum feeding. And let me explain that. That's not how, as much as you can eat. That's what a normal animal, animal that's not doing social eating, not your dog, <laughs> not your cat, that you've trained to socially eat, but a normal animal like a squirrel or anybody else, any other animal you would see, when they eat and they just stop when they're full. They stop when they're done. And when you restrict their calories 30 40% less than that, they live 40 to 50% longer. And when we knock those genes out of them, because we can create genetically modified um, animals that, that can, we can then do the same exact thing, they die a normal life, even with the caloric restriction. So the point here is, is that what we've learned is that across all of these species, from yeast all the way up, that we actually are seeing those genes at work. And, and what's really neat about this is that there are also compounds, sirtuin-activating compounds, we talk about stacks, that are activated when plants are stressed, and when we consume that plant with that activated compound, the most popular of which is resveratrol, but there's other ones out there, metformin, which is a popular uh, drug for oral medication for type 2 diabetes, and there's some other ones, but when those things come out, those actually activate and we see some of the same thing, same, some of the same activity or some of the same, you know, 
systems that are that are promoted. And what's fun about this to think about is that literally we have one species telegraphing to another species. That's a work, some work David did on the xenohormesis hypothesis, which says one species is literally transmitting information to the other via a molecule. And I think that's pretty exciting. I mean, it's it's really interesting to think of us being tied so closely together. And of course, you know, later, you know, if we talk about the food triangle, one of the things we think about is that if we base our food on a certain kind of diet, which is, you know, nutrient dense and calorie poor, and then we start adding down one of the two sides of that triangle, we have a, you know, fundamentally different different um, outcome. So that's a great place to, to move on to that because I think um, – I mean the, the paper is – it's not that long. It's, it's six pages, and I highly encourage you to go download it if you're listening to this. Um, speaking of that, Ray, is there a good – I'll put a link, of course, but just for people who don't visit the page, is there an easy-to-remember way to find this paper online? Just me- probably metabolic winter hypothesis. That's probably going to get most people to it. Just Google but, that. But okay. cer- certainly have it on your, your site, et cetera. Yeah, we will. So anyway, I think there's a ton here, and we're not going to even be able to get into the non-nutrition part. There's there's a, a good bit about sleep and cold and uh, and exercise and, and how little role exercise may play in in losing weight because um, surprisingly we we actually do about the same amount of activity in terms of caloric expenditure as our ancestors and their ancestors. So um, it's it's really interesting. But I think the part that people very easily can grasp, um, partly because it's a diagram and something you can just see. Is the food triangle, and and I assume what you're doing here is uh is kind of, it's your answer to the food pyramid. So don't confuse those two triangle and pyramid. Because when I when we were first talking about it, I, I was thinking okay it's going to be another food pyramid, but it's it's a little bit different than that. Um to to the person who's listening to this on a run or something, um it's it's not going to be plainly as obvious what um you know what we're referring to. So can you just go back from from the very beginning? Um and let's just kind of talk about what it looks like to someone who, who, and I, again, encourage you to download the paper so you can see it, but if you're not in a position where you can do that, um, just so you can visualize this discussion, and I'm going to go ahead and, and move this to, to before you kind of get into uh, you know, dissecting it a little bit, but at the top is the leafy greens, cruciferous, cruciferous vegetables, stems, bulbs, mushrooms, and these are the foods that have very little energy in them, right? Very low-calorie foods. Exactly. Nutrient-dense, calorie-poor foods. Okay, so that's the very top of the, of the triangle, and then down the left side of it is the animal products, which are right. meat. And those are primarily those primarily have fat as their source of energy. So what the triangle is doing is it's an energy density triangle. In other words, as you go down to the base, there's more energy available. Okay? And we all know that our obesity issue or our inability to finish the run is a is a lack of energy, having a lack of the the proper either stored fuel or active fuel. So down the left side we're basically sourcing fat. On the right side, we've got fruits, cereals, pulses. You know, legumes are probably more commonly said. Uh, starchy vegetables; those are mainly carbohydrate-sourced foods. But there are nuts and seeds, and other sources of dietary fats in plants. But when you're eating a whole food source of them, it's hard to overeat them. Does right. that make sense? Totally. So. So, so what we're doing is, is that we're trying to separate out. We're taking what Liebig originally started, which is protein plus fuel. You need protein to build the tissues, but you also need these fuels, and these fuels come in two packages: fats and carbohydrates. And and in those those fuels, we need them. Well, they said we kind of need a balance of them, 
And it's true. If you wake up in the morning and get on my calorimeter, you're usually burning 50-50. You know, if you've been on a diet in a while, you're burning maybe 70-30. You're both mostly burning fat if you've been losing weight for a while, counter to, to some people's idea. And if you're the, at the uh, an endurance runner, part of your training is obviously not exceeding a certain volume of air, your VO2 max. You want to stay at a low enough of idea, a low enough uh, respiration, so you don't stress yourself. But part of that is so that you don't kick yourself into full carbohydrate, so that you end up bonking in the race. So you've got to start as a distance runner. You have to start using fat much earlier in the race than the average person. So all of that training helps you start to use that fat earlier because the natural thing when one is exercising is to use carbohydrate. That's what your body naturally does. And with the exception of elite, um, elite athletes or, for example, someone who has gone into ketosis and they've completely eliminated starch to reduce the glycogen, they can obviously burn fats too. But, it, it, but the natural thing in a mixed diet, which is a more natural diet, you're going to exercise is going to be highly favored on the on the carbohydrate side does that make sense yep it does okay so so the pyramid um so you know we've explained what it looks like so the left side of it and, and i assume this wasn't totally clear to me from reading but from listening to you it sounds like it is the idea of the pyramid is that it's pick one or the other it's either do the left side which includes the top the leafy greens cruciferous vegetables all that stuff the low energy plant food include that and then either do what a lot of people consider paleo, which is the left side, the, the animal products, or do the other side, which, of course, still includes that top low-energy vegetables, but now includes the higher-calorie plant foods like fruits, beans, and, of course, the nuts and seeds. Is that right? It's pick I'm, I'm going to twist it a little bit. Okay. How about let's look at it this way. If you eat on the bottom, if you're a bottom feeder, you're going to get fat. And so think of it this way. We're, we are usually – our no, normal standard American diet or the Western diet is bottom feeding. That's what we're eating mostly, okay? And what, what paleos do is they add stuff in the upper top on the left, and they drop the stuff on the right. You got okay. it? Yep. And what a vegan would do is they would add stuff on the top, and they would drop the stuff on the left, on the bottom. Okay. So a better way to look at it or maybe a different way to look at an alternative way is we're all eating on the bottom now, and that's what's causing – if you look at those foods, that's what most people recognize as foods, steak and potatoes. You know, what – just give your – you know, just look at all foods, and you'll see they're all on the bottom. They're all energy-dense foods. They're the ones that taste the best. Those are the ones that people crave. Those are the ones that, are, that, that have – you know, they're the most decadent. But the point is, is that what one ends up doing if they want to lose weight is they get rid of generally one or the other side and they add to the top. Is it possible that person could have all three in their diet and maintain it? Of course, because there are people that do it every day. But it, it, it becomes more difficult because you don't recognize. You don't recognize two tablespoons of olive oil a day for 14 days as a pound of body fat. And a tablespoon of olive oil disappears in your food like that. So the point here is is if you get away from the processed stuff, the, the, all the oils, the refined sugars, don't do that. Source your fats on the right side from nuts and seeds. If you're on the left side, they just leave those alone altogether. You don't have a problem. Does that make sense? So it's really a bottom-up from the way you're presenting it. 
it would be a bottom-up approach. We were just presenting it saying these foods at the top you can eat at almost unlimited proportions and you're not going to have a problem and you're going to meet a large percentage of your nutrient needs, but you won't meet all your calorie needs. So now you got to go down on either side to meet those. Does that make sense? Yep. Totally. Make so, it clear? so the advice to either either an average person who's doing a paleo diet or a person who eats the average plant-based diet, um, I mean, maybe even slightly above average in terms of how healthy it is, but even to that person, the advice is eat more of the top and, and less of, of the bottom, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, let's look at the progression here. If you, t- if you t- take a standard Western diet, which is the bottom, what people end up doing is they start adding, and even in a paleo, they start adding more plants to it. I mean, there's no doubt. That's what they do. They look at their plates, look at what they're doing. They're adding way more plants than the average Western, standard Western diet is. You go to a Mediterranean diet, they drop more, they drop more of the animal products, more of the, the, the fat products, and some of the refined grains products, and then they add more plants. You go to, to you know, nutritarian diet, which you and I, you know, like with Joel Furman, and you find that he's dropped, you know, most of those other energy dense foods and we're just basically eating on the right side and he's even dropped you know even the starchy vegetables are are you know rare and appropriate so he doesn't have those john mcdougall with the with 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 dr mcdougall with his his diet again it's on the right hand side and if you eat oreo cookies which is a sugar and fat load even though it's vegan you're going to gain weight I mean, it, it's it's just simple, and it, there's so many people that believe that switching to a vegetarian. Well, let's look at vegetarian. What is that? You got ovo lacto, which means it's an ethical position, and I'm not against that. But what are they doing? They're eating all that stuff on the right, and they're adding eggs and milk. And there you go. They're they're crossing across the bottom, and they have issues. They end up having weight issues. You know, vegetarian or vegan, neither one properly denote the nutritional basis of what of of a of a plant-based diet for those people that want to follow that and conversely we all hear on the other side everyone believes carbohydrates make them fat well if you're eating mostly on the left side of this and you start eating carbohydrates and starches i wouldn't be surprised if you don't overeat calories does that make sense so this gives you a simple mnemonic mnemonic for looking at food and making a decision with the one caveat that we don't eat highly refined sugars and oils and uh, hi, uh, highly refined grains, all of those really are highly processed and they're not food. So I'm talking about whole source forms of fat, whole source fo- forms, food source of carbohydrate. We're not talking about refined stuff, if that makes sense. Yep. Okay, so, so it's eat – Eat the calorically not dense, I guess sparse <laughs> vegetables. Nutri- Nutrient dense, calorie poor. Yes, eat those vegetables and then Apex. choose between choose between fat, which is animal products, and carbohydrate, which is which is by and large the other plant foods. So is that on is that a meal to meal thing? Like then source your if you're on the right side, you have an additional step that you have to now source your essential fatty acids, something else that we need right. through diet. We have to source those through nuts and seeds. That's the other step. Yes. Okay. Um, so is that on a meal-to-meal basis? Like for dinner, one, if they didn't have ethical position in this, could eat the animal food for lunch and then and then at dinner switch to the carbohydrate side? Or is this something you've got to base your whole diet on it? 
honestly, I don't think it matters. Nutrition is an emergency. We need air within minutes. We need water within days. And, you know, we need food within 30 days. I mean, there's just so many examples, and we'll talk about that with my self-experiment. There's so many examples of people going, you know, up to 382 days without food. And if, if nutrition was an emergency, those people would certainly be a blob of jello on the floor after 382 days of nothing but water. Our obsession with seeking nutrients causes us to overeat and eat all day long. And you just simply don't need to eat that much unless, of course, you're in a situation where there aren't many calories or you have a huge output, for example, in your case, and you're trying to keep up with that amount. But anybody who has the least amount of or is the least amount overweight, you simply don't have to eat all day long. And we'll be addressing with this in, in future papers, but the, this, this idea is new that we just have to eat all, all day long. We, I, I opened the paper up with Hippocrates saying, you know, we used to, we used to basically, you know, say, you know, do people eat once or twice a day? Mm-hmm. And, and some of that had to do with the season. Some of it had to do with age. Some of it had to do with culture. Some had to do with habit of whether people eat once or twice a day. Now, six day meals a day. And when you're digesting your food and you're eating, you're not running off of reserves. It's a really simple concept. So the bottom line is is that the, the, the more often that you're in that fed state, the more often you're just processing the foods that you're putting in. So, okay, I've got two more questions about this. Actually, three more about the, about the food triangle, and uh, we'll probably wrap up after that. But first one is, I mean, you mentioned that, that – some people do find eating on the bottom for whatever reason because they they are they have a good relationship with food or maybe their bodies are are better equipped to handle it. But I mean, what about the the hunter gatherer or gatherer hunter ancestor who you know I imagine was eating things on both the left and right side of this pyramid? Is it just that the general scarcity of food back then made up for the fact that that the person was eating both? Exactly. Okay. I mean, gather a hunter, hunter gather. It's irrelevant. The bottom line is, is that if they overate, they were fat hunter gatherers, and if they underate, they were skinny hunter gatherers. And the point is, is that food in nature is rare. I mean, that's it. And you know, and when you look, at one other interesting thing for your audience, we talk about the one paper what looks at gorillas, non-protein energy, NPE, non-protein energy is. <clears throat> was was invariant, meaning the non-protein energy stayed the same throughout the gorilla's diet year-long. But during one part of the diet, the fruit diet, the protein drops to the level that we would normally see in a human diet, a, a normal human diet. And then during the leaf-eating phase of the diet, when the fruits are not there, because fruits aren't there seasonally, back to this whole seasonality, you know, we have fruits every single day all the time. But Fruit that the, the gorilla actually has to respond to environment. During that time, he's mostly eating leaves. And contrary to popular you know thought, when the gorilla is eating mostly leaves, his protein in his diet goes up significantly to almost the levels we would see in a high protein diet in a human diet. So interestingly enough, when he's eating nothing but leaves, that's when his protein is the highest. Because obviously the fruits are far he can get satiated and eat a lot less. Because it's higher in the sugars. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the point is, is that you know those kinds of modulations happen in nature, 
and it's based on availability. Humans spread to all corners of the earth because we could eat anything. That doesn't mean we should. And just because some group ate it in the past doesn't mean that was perfect. Because like I said, the part that got spread on with our genes, the evolution part, happens when you're young. Our problem today is not reproduction. <laughs> That's just simply not the issue that we have. Our issue today is, or our children staying alive, our issue today is is that we're all getting chronic disease when we're past our reproductive prime, and that's where we really need to be focused on. And I would submit that that healthfulness is going to come in activating those caloric, those those sirtuin genes, which is a combination of, you know, caloric restriction, eating less total calories, specifically the essential amino acids, and also mild cold stress and proper you know, sleep. So having right. all of those things in there will help people, generally speaking, be more helpful. Okay, great. So my last two questions here. First of all, we, we mentioned protein earlier at, at some length, um, but someone who just glances at this at this food triangle, which I think is going to be the easy, as I said, the easiest to grasp, the takeaway thing, um, and they show it to someone else, and that person says, well, how come there's no protein in here? Why is it fat and carbohydrates and nothing else? What's What's the short one paragraph answer to that? I don't usually have short one paragraph answers. <laughs> okay, but if but if you want the idea to spread, you know, I'm just kidding. No, uh, I know. But the, I... the answer the answer is is that if they really want the if they really want the answer, we put the reference in there. It's called the protein fiasco. It was written by McLaren in 1974. The bottom line is protein became the very first marketed nutrient. So our obsession with protein is based on our obsession with marketing protein. Now, if it were a hundred years ago we would have been talking about beef versus wheat, and we discussed that. If we were talking about World War I, they would talk about how we're going to starve people of protein or, or, or food and how we use food in, in times of war to control our enemy. So the fact of the matter is, is that the obsession with protein is because it's a word. And what you wind up knowing is that protein is the building block of life. It's the building block of life. Everything living is a protein, and unless you're just eating sugar and oil, which is not on the food triangle, there is really no way to have a protein deficiency and meet your calorie requirements. So, for example, we make the example. If you eat enough potato to meet your total calorie requirements, something that's very difficult to do, certainly if you're young, it's really difficult if you're a young child. But even as an adult, it's hard to do day after day. If you do that, you meet all of your amino acid requirements. So people don't need protein. People need amino acids. And they don't need amino acids. They only need half of them. So the point is, is that half of what you're eating gets burned with fuel right away. The other half that you're eating, you only need them when you need them. Your body doesn't have a store of them like it does for fat, for example, or even glycogen. Your body just burns them, which is why protein meals, high-protein meals, whether it's plant or animal-based, is irrelevant. Maybe it's just a shake. Whatever it is, you have the, one of the highest boosts in your metabolism because your body has to burn off the X. It's got to get rid of it. it has, you decided to swallow it. It has to decide to do something with it. So the question then becomes, you know, who, where is the protein deficiency disease? It doesn't exist. No one's dying of protein deficiencies, and the only people that really seem to be obsessed with the amino acids 
are those people that are selling supplements of amino acids. And most of those amino acids that they're selling supplements are 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 negatively associated with longevity. Right. You know, do you really want to be taking branch chain amino acids when, in fact, branch chain amino acids, valine, leucine, isoleucine are all pro- are all problems when it comes to longevity. So, you know, I don't think that's I don't think that's necessarily wise. And my co-author, Andrew Bremer, a lot of people will know the work he's done with Robert Lustig on fructose. But it's you know, it's true that the liver gets really pounded by branch chain amino acids, fructose trans fats and alcohol and all four of those things in excess cause metabolic dysfunction. Okay, great. So longevity is exactly what the, the last question is about. So it's a good place to go. Um, uh, you know, I've heard this before about caloric restriction being one of the only factors that's really consistently linked to longevity. Um, and the Hippocrates quote of, should we eat just the normal once per day or should we now eat twice per day? Uh, it's certainly appealing and interesting. And I can see how, how, for much of our evolution, we probably did eat one meal a day, if that. You know, there might, might have been long stretches, of course, where we didn't have that much food or any. Um, I mean, when, when I imagine, when I think about that, like getting to a one meal a day thing or even two meals a day, it, I, all I can picture is is my stomach hurting from hunger and me just thinking about nothing but food, feeling like I'm nothing. I mean, I mean, I mean feeling like I have to eat, and then just withering away to nothing. Uh, and I imagine a lot of people imagine that as the, as the outcome of that. What, what would you say to me if, if that was my objection to, to the idea of eating once or even just twice per day? So I would ask another question. You know, how miserable is being thirsty? Very miserable. I, I didn't say dehydrated. Okay. I said thirsty. Oh, okay. Just, just, just a basic level of I'm, I'm thirsty. I'm, yeah, right. Not miserable. It's not miserable at all, right? And nope. it doesn't. It's not in a really good thing to be miserable. Now, once you get beyond thirst, when you get to the point of dehydration, which I've just told you, air. You know how long it's hard to hold your breath. So holding your breath, being without air, is not a good thing, right? You know. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that in a in a in a hyperbaric chamber, if we take the air out. You just get silly and you fall asleep, and it's not miserable at all to be without oxygen. It's miserable to hold your breath and build up CO2, but being without oxygen, the thing you actually need, the waste product is a problem, but the oxygen, you can take the oxygen away, and you just get lightheaded and silly, and you can't think like you know what they did to us at NASA in the chambers. You've probably seen it on the right stuff and other stuff, and you, you, know, you slowly just fall asleep of hypoxia, and it's over. It's not miserable at all, and being without water isn't miserable until you get to the point of dehydration. Being, being dehydrated is miserable. Well, the same thing goes with hunger. What most people describe as hunger is actually withdrawal symptoms. It's not hunger at all. Mm-hmm. It's Hunger is not miserable. It's a tightness in the throat. It's your mouth waters, and food tastes really good. Joel Furman really does a good job with this and Eat to Live. And, and probably some of his other books of describing instant, instinctual eating. What what good from an evolutionary perspective? Since everybody seems to be keen on that, does it is it to be have a headache, to be lethargic, to be irritable, to have no energy? If your goal is to seek food and you don't have food, so I've gone as much as five days without food at this point. We're going to talk about my self experiments. I'm going to do at the end uh, at, at the end of this, but. I'm doing about six weeks of, of self-experiments that I want to do for some, some new work that I'm doing and just demonstrate this stuff with 
unbelievable instrumentation about what we're saying is true. But it turns out that being without food, the first two or three days you go through withdrawal just like everybody else does on caffeine or alcohol or heroin. It's a different level of severity. It's a different level of duration. But it's the same kind of thing. You don't feel very good. And then finally, you don't think about it. You just don't think about food. And it's really easy. So if you're addictively eating all the time, and those addictive hits, I believe, come from sugar, salt, and fat. If you're not having sugar, salt, and fat all the time, I think you end up not having those addictive hits. But I don't think the goal here is to push everybody to say right away, go to one meal a day or whatever. You know, Right now, there's a big fad on alternate day fasting. I don't have a problem with it, but it's, it's what I'm trying to say is nutrition isn't an emergency. So we think of nutrition as a daily emergency because it's a daily economic emergency. It's not a daily human emergency. And so a restaurant, a restaurant needs to name the meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, so they know what to serve you when you walk through the door. There's no such thing as breakfast food. There's no such thing as lunch food. There's no such thing as dinner food. We're humans, and we can process a lot of things, and we have become spoiled. And we've created all these rules to eating, and every time we get together with another human, it has to involve food. Are we surprised that we're overweight? Every every time we get together, it's about eating. You and I laughed about it when you during your 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 book tour, because both of us were fine. We had had a little something before. We hadn't had anything all day. We were both driving. We met. We had a little something. We were fine, but people wanted to go eat again. Remember? Yep. Yep. And, and we both laughed because neither one of us really needed to eat at that point. It wasn't. But it was not. A, it was a problem. We had a great time at at dinner and talking, but people don't even know how to get together. So what, what I'm saying is, is that rather than ask this question, how miserable is it? That's what people do with cold stress. They worry about how miserable it is. And the truth of the matter is they're just used to warm. Right. And they're used to sugar on their tongue all the time. They're used to salt on their tongue all the time. They're used to doing something with their mouth every couple of hours. And then they want to know why they're, they're gaining weight. Well, the answer is, is that in the real world, Animals and humans probably didn't eat all the time because it simply wasn't available. What you said earlier, our access to it really didn't happen until we got so sophisticated in our distribution system. And if we're already eating enough calories today and already making enough calories a day and you make food, they're not evil guys because they want to make more food or sell more food. They just want to make it more appealing. They sell you what you want. And then we blame them for it. But ultimately, no one tells you to open your mouth. And I tell people the best exercise that they could possibly do is to clench their mouth tightening and isometrically clench their mouth tighten in in the presence of fattening food. You can't out-exercise your mouth, period. You just can't. So so that's – you know, I I really want to think of it differently than – what what you're asking it's not that your question is is wrong i just want you to twist it just a little bit and say why is every single human interaction and i've now looked at that i've i've studied about you know 200 years of nutrition work and that's something i'm working on personal personally with 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 a potential book and and research i'm doing now which is why is it that our relationship with food has fundamentally changed and how has it changed with this seeking of all the nutrients and going after it. So at the end of the summer, I'm doing some self-experiments. I definitely want to come back to you guys and 
get some of your people to help. I'm going to crowdsource all of this stuff. But, you know, it's going to be about thirty dollars or $40,000 worth of testing that I'm doing over a six-week period. And I really want to demonstrate fundamentally that what we've learned in the last 200 years is correct, but the story we tell about it is wrong. And I think I can demonstrate that just like we did in the four-hour body with Tim with demonstrating certain things that are possible and impossible and, you know, really – really hope that you and I can work together too on that because it's, it's, I think it's fascinating. Awesome. Yeah. I would, I would absolutely love to, to do something more. And I, I'm still really interested to revisit um, something that's, you know, we're talking about general weight loss for the, for the general population. I mean, then this, what you're doing here, of course, is work that, that the impact, um, you know, if it, if it flushes out and, and if your experimentation goes well and backs it up, um, you know, I mean, could, could change everything for so many people. But um, of course, I'd like to still get back to something that that you know specific to people who who put in 50 miles a week or more of training, and as you mentioned, have gotten to the point where where their bodies do burn fat relatively soon in in running. They're, you know, they're burning fat from the beginning, um, and and just kind of go into experimenting with that and all. Because I know you you have a ton of knowledge in that department as well. So um, yeah, I'm looking forward to to hearing how how this next phase goes for you. And, right. Uh, Again, I will encourage everyone to go download the paper. I'll put the link on my site under this. Um, but if you just Google the metabolic winter hypothesis, you will find the paper and uh, you'll be able to download the whole thing for free. All right. So, Ray, thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate your time as always. This is always stimulating every single time we talk. And uh, we, I could do it for, for three hours as we have before, but uh, we got to wrap it up at, at one. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. It was great to uh, be here again. All right. Talk to you later, Rick.